Hey Z. Yeah. Have you ever had a kitchen disaster involving a possum? Uh, actually, no. Not this week. Not this week. But <laughs> have you ever seen your local government fail its most vulnerable citizens, and then seen artists step up? Yes. And one of those is Gemma Leslie of Food for Everyone. Food for Everyone invites chefs and artists to collaborate on recipe posters. From each poster purchased, they donate the equivalent of ten meals to food charities. To date, they've donated one hundred and fifty thousand dollars, which equals roughly seven hundred and fifty thousand meals. You can find recipes from Nigella Lawson, Jessica Nguyen, Hedy McKinnon, and Andrew McConnell. Beautifully accompanied by artworks from artists like Libby Haynes, Ali Webb, and Gemma herself. In this episode, we talk to Gem about family recipes, what constitutes real art, and the power of community. We recorded this on Wurundjeri Country, which always was and always will be Aboriginal land. A heads up that we say some rude words, and we also discuss postnatal depression. We started by asking Gemma about her earliest memories of art. So my earliest memories of art were definitely at school with the art teacher. There was an art classroom in the corner of the school and there's just joyful stuff hanging from the roof. There's flags, there's artwork everywhere. It's just like how it should be. And that was the class that I could not wait to get to. And I'd always, remember lining up by twos at the front door of your classroom? I was always at the front. But I was the one that wouldn't say much. I was so shy as a kid, you could not get a word out of me. But I'd be right in the front line. I'd sit right at the front. I could not wait to get my smock on. Um, I love the smock. The smock. <laughs> I miss <Yeah>. my smock. <laughs> and yeah, I just that feeling of being in that room just made me feel so happy. And in my family, we weren't arty. We were creative in different ways. So obviously, mum was creative. Um, with her food, like open the pantry, make whatever is there. Um, my brothers were really sporty. My dad was a sewing machine mechanic, so he'd always oh. he'd have a creative mind. At home, I was in a creative environment, but not in terms of like an art practice. Mm. So I'd never really seen it outside of that cute little art room at primary school. And then as I, you know, got to high school, you know, it became serious and mm. I'd always, as a kid, you'd see like pens and pencils and paintbrushes on the floor of my room and I'd have so much art on my wall. Thinking back, yeah, I'd, I'd always be making a little picture of some sort. I yeah. love that. It's and so to sort good. of open that treasure chest of things from your childhood a bit more, can you tell us about the memories of food that invoke strong nostalgia for you still now? So growing up, every time there was a birthday or a celebration, mum would cook a roast and or like spaghetti bolognese or just one of those two things. And we'd all sit at the table and talk about it. Like in our kitchen dining room growing up, we had all of the things in there. So like my brothers would have their sports trophy up on like where the where you put the plates. Yeah. I had like my 
art on the fridge and the dog was there, like in his bed, the TV was there, like the family photos were there. So it was like this quite chaotic room that all of our favourite things and achievements were there. And it was always super special when, you know, we'd have the cousins coming over, like, oh, my God, the cousins are coming over. We've got to, like, extend the table. Like, let's open the extension <laughs> and, you know, dust off the trophies and make them look good. So, yeah, it was sort of just like a special experience just being at the table mm. and we'd have those kind of foods on repeat. So, like, yeah, roast lamb, roast mm. cutlets, the three veg. And spaghetti bolognese. Mm. It sounds like the kitchen was just the hub for you. Yeah. And a place where a lot of important early memories and loves were formed Mm. to now you being an artist and a designer. Can you tell us a bit more about what you do as an artist and a designer and how you got here? I mean, I only got here three years ago, but I've always done art throughout my life. So I think in prep I got my art on the front cover of the school magazine and mum and dad were like wow that's pretty cool and I was like just so proud of that and I always had it in my room on my desk always looked at it and was like that's awesome it just gave me like the most joyful feeling and it felt very enabling like I felt like that was my ticket to be able to keep on going but I never took it that serious I just did it because I was a child and just loved it. it never was like a you know was never my plan. Um, And I have two older brothers. They played basketball and I just wanted to be like them. So I always had these competing things. Like I had Mm. basketball, catching up with the boys, um, trying to get them. And then I had the art on the softer side. Um, And I literally grew up just doing those things. And I finished high school and decided to study public relations because that's Mm. what – you do, obviously not. So I really hated that course, but mm. I did do an exchange in Canada and I studied photojournalism. So to finish the course, there was like a design subject and I was like, oh, I'm, I actually really love this. I transferred into a graphic design university course, did a few years of working as a graphic designer in small fashion brands. I had my own business for a little while Decided to become an entrepreneur really at a young age. I think I was like 21. Wow. Um, and I thought I needed to do that to be proved to be able to get a job, if that makes sense, as, yeah. a, as a designer because yeah. I just had no portfolio. I had no real work. Like you get out of uni and you, you just got your uni projects and everyone knows what they look like and they're all mm. kind of clones of each other. And in the end I ended up getting offered a job um, quite quickly and – Yeah, in the start of COVID, early pandemic days, I was made redundant from my job. I was head of marketing at a jewellery brand. And at the time, I was literally like devastated. But to be honest, it was a good kick in the ass because Mm. it did force me to just stop. When did you first go back to art uh, during that time? And then I just want to know what art means to you. I went back to art straight away. It was like Uh the second day. Hmm. And to me, I've realised it's a form of meditation. So it's a form of escapism for me. And I turned to food because it was in front of me. Um, And that's Mm. sort of all we had. We had the creative agency of 
making, like if what everyone was making pasta, I'm sure yeah. of it, you know, just out in the garden, growing our own herbs, sort of becoming more connected to what we're eating. Yeah. Um, and then in turn, I was producing that in a creative way on campus. And I recently put my um, art into Fairfield Primary School. They have like okay. an art exhibition to raise money. That's their way of making funds for the school. And it only started 25 years ago and the school was shutting down and the parents got together with the art teacher and said, let's make an art exhibition to raise money. And they saved the school. So they've kept on doing it. And that almost made me cry. And I walked past the art room and the teacher was like, hi, can I help you? And we got talking and I just got that feeling again when I looked inside that room because it had all the stuff hanging from the room it had those cute little chairs it had the smocks on the rail and like you know the drying racks the drying racks I want it I need one yeah with all the crinkled paper that you know just like lots of color in there and I just love it maybe I should be an art teacher I just remember (laughs) I just remember clag that's my only real art Memory? Do they still use clag? Is I'm not sure. Oh, is it the kids eating at all? Which is interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's your, um, your intersection of food and uh, oh, that's, that's a memory. Kids isn't eating it? clag, dry clag. Oh. <laughs> um, it's really interesting. You saying that school was saved by people teaming up with the art teacher to make art and have yeah. We a turned fundraiser. to art when mm-hmm. we're in desperate need, like lockdown. Yeah. We turned to art. Mm-hmm. So it's so. You know where I'm going yeah. with this question now because it's just there's some <laughs> some some dots have joined for me that there's the possibility of it being impressed upon you that uh, people mobilising with art can make a difference. When I think about what you do with your own work, heartfelt activism feels like it's a very big value of yours. So food for everyone. So Take it from the start. Remember at the start of this interview, I was talking about how I got made redundant and was making art. Mm. I don't know whether you recall. So I think it was a few weeks in and it was quite desperate time. So we were all watching the TV. There was news on. The news was constantly on and we were just like looking at yeah. numbers. Yeah. Three cases today, four cases. I mean, looking back, it was kind of. hundred cases today. Yeah, yeah, and it just jumped and jumped and jumped. And then there was a few outbreaks in the commission housing in the north of Melbourne and the government just decided, hey, let's just lock everyone inside. And they did that at no notice. And I was like, what the hell is going on? So there was this amazing charity delivering all this food to the people in the towers Fair Share, who was re-delivering all the meals, they weren't making a noise. They were just doing what they do. They provide meals for people in need. And with that food, you know, they fed families, they fed elderly, you know, they kept it going. They just didn't do it for one day. They did it for weeks. Mm. And I just wanted to do something good. So I just wanted to raise money, change the narrative. So I had this light bulb moment where I was coming down the stairs and I was like, oh my God, I've got it. And the idea was, is that I wanted to paint these recipe posters with my four cook chef friends. So I was like, run down the stairs and said to my boyfriend, oh my God, I've got the best idea. I just, and I just like blurted the idea out to him. And he was like, all right, babe, (laughs) like whatever you want to do. 
I'll support it. And it was quite funny because he was like, whatever, because he had his job still and he was like on a million Zoom meetings and I was like off doing my art with my smock. Um, <laughs> and so I contacted four friends. So one is Clementine Day. Um, she is the author of Something I Like to Cook. Mm-hmm. Um, my 80-year-old neighbour at the time was um, Suzanne Corbett. She is um, just like the most amazing cook and most beautiful person I've ever met. Mm. Um, Julia Ostro, who, you know, is a big Mm. name in Melbourne and she has such a big love for food and community through the work she does. And Ellie Bordana. And, yeah, I asked for four recipes that meant a lot to them um, Mm. and that they'd want to cook for their friends and family. I got the first recipe and started painting it out and I completed one post and then showed the girls what they look like and they were so on board they loved it so I completed the other posters as quick as possible I think I did them like in one day or two days something like really tight I just could not wait to make a difference and to get it out and at the time I had one of my good friends was a printer so she printed everything sent them to one of my best friends Victoria Schlommer who's a photographer and she photographed them in her house so it was locked down at the time Mm. um and yeah started little instagram page and started putting my work up and trying to spread the word and it just caught on and at the time it was a pre-order concept so i didn't want to put money into it when i didn't have to so it was all pre-order and my printer friend was like that's fine you just put the order in when you can and i opened up the order window on my website and these orders flooded in. I could not believe it. There was, I literally did like 600 posters in one day. Wow. Um, so I raised $33,000 on my first release. $33,000. Psycho. And wow. I just was, it was like a slap in the face, like, Gemma, this is awesome. Look what I've done. And I think the meal equivalent to that, I think fair share, it was two meals per $1. So it was. 66,000 meals. Oh, um, God. And they were – it wasn't enough for what we were experiencing at that time because everybody needed help, like mm. uni students, elderly, the people in the towers. So they were doing such valuable work that I just continued the business. Um, so now today I've worked – I've done over 35 posters with chefs – and cooks. Mm. Um, I've commissioned other artists to do what I do and put their own interpretation onto that. And yeah, I just can't believe that I do this as a job now. Um, It's hard, don't get me wrong, but it makes me so happy. And obviously um, giving back is such a big part for me and it makes me really happy. But also this wouldn't exist without community spreading the good word Every journalist that writes an article actually believes in the project. So, yeah, it's just like a huge community lift up for this business, which also gives me, you know, the spirit to keep on going and to keep on producing these joyful projects. Community care is everything. Yeah. I just, it just makes me so happy. I get goosebumps when you tell that story. It's just really, it's really beautiful because, yeah, it was such a failure on the government's behalf of just shutting those towers down and a lot of people rushed there with food but were not able to hand the food over or they were told that the food would get there and then it got chucked out and people were getting like arrested for just going down there and protesting and 
it seems like you really were able to look at what you could do and then call on your community. And so not only were you able to make a difference in those crucial times of like severe lockdown, but now it's still going and your community is sustaining it and it's just growing. And I just, it's beautiful. I'm very happy with how my life has turned around. (laughs) I've gone from a job that I did really enjoy, but now I just like fucking love what I do. Mm. And I feel like I have a lot of freedom and I've, also a lot of power to give people freedom, which feels so good. Mm. In the, what is it, three years now? That Three years? Probably yeah. around three years, right? That Yeah, I had the third birthday about two months ago. Oh, happy third birthday. Thank you. And in that time, <laughs> you've worked with such a variety of um, people collaborating and creating these beautiful artworks. Can you tell us? some that come to mind that that were really special to you? I think the cooks and chefs really carried the business Mm. straight up. So after the first collection, I wanted to start a second collection. I was like, oh, my God, maybe I could go for some well-established people from Melbourne. And Mike, my partner, was like, what about Andrew McConnell? And I was like, oh, no, I could never do that. He would like, definitely not. And then he's like, I work with his cousin. And I was like, okay, let's do it. And I put a pitch together. Everything I do, I don't know why, I just have to like literally lay it out on all of these pages. So I'm a very visual person. It has to be in dot points and there's a lot of pictures. (laughs) So I sent my picture document to Andrew McConnell and, yeah, he said yes and I literally screamed. (laughs) Like I just could not believe he said yes. And that poster is, yeah, definitely one of my favourite. It feels the most like me, which Mm. is really important. Like it feels like. That's my artwork. Um, So every time I look at it, I never get sick of it. It just brings me a lot of joy. We have this list that I have on the computer and I put names on it. It's like a dream list. And one of the people that were on the list was Nigella Lawson. And, yeah, I've just (laughs) released a poster with her. And I I feel like maybe I should retire. Done no, you're allowed. We're not letting you do that, but you can have a moment to scream a little bit more. Yeah. Have a and, moment to scream, but um, you're not allowed to stop ah, doing this. And <laughs> it was the most weird thing. So it was on the list, but it wasn't my idea. So I had EVO. So she's a mm. artist and designer based in Sydney. So she does a lot of design jobs for chefs mm. and cooks and authors. Um So, yeah, she's super talented and I approached her to do a poster for me and we got on a Zoom and before I could say anything, she was like, okay, Gemma, I only want to do this if I do Nigella. And I was (gasps) like, okay, how are we going to do that? (laughs) Obviously, I want to do Nigella and I want her to be on a Food for Everyone poster And we just got our heads together. We were like, let's use all our contacts. Mm -hmm. So I'm emailing everybody, getting nothing back. Nigella is a huge name. Like you just don't email her. This went on for like two months and I just really needed to 
hurry up on this project because it was being released for a Christmas, yeah. which was yeah, yeah. released a couple of weeks ago. And I said to Evie, like, maybe we'll just put the project on hold and we'll do it next year because obviously she's hard to get. And Evie's mm. like, let me try one more thing. <gasps> and she just texts her on Instagram DM. No. And Nigella wrote back saying, I would love to. And that's it. Like that's how that happens. So Evie slid into Nigella's DMs. <laughs> yeah. So Evie saved Christmas. Evie saved Christmas. Evie saved Christmas. That's mm. right. Thank you, Evie. We yes. know that you especially love to snoop around in pantries. You Can are you tell a pantry us what, snoop. Tell us. <laughs> what that's all about? Well, two and a half years ago I had my first exhibition and I really want to do another one. And I was really stuck with what inspires me. I started snooping in people's pantries <laughs> and I have a lot mm. of Greek and Italian friends and everyone's always talking yeah. about their nonna's recipes. And I was like, oh, my God, your nonna's recipes. And then they were like, what's your heritage, Gemma? And I was like, I'm Australian. And she called me one of those. She goes, oh, you're one of those. And I thought... I didn't know whether to be offended. I was just very confused because I didn't have any family recipes. I got called one of those and, yeah, it just got me thinking. I was like, what are my family recipes? Like now that we're talking, spaghetti bolognese is obviously a family recipe. Mm, But so I got on the family chat and I said, hey, did Nana have any family recipes that you could share with me? And my auntie said, yes, I have them all written down in a book. Um, oh, wow. I'll find it. A few hours later, she comes back with the, the book with some photos and my nana had beautiful mm-hmm. writing. And we got this photo of this curly really beautiful writing. And I could, I could never read her writing because it's like almost another language. And I made it out. It was rice bubble treats with marshmallow and I was like and they said that this was the family recipe Mm -hmm. and I was just like fucking hell like (laughs) I was like this is bullshit this is rice bubbles and I just could not relate to it I I wanted like my nunna's like ragu or something like that as being very special (laughs) and I realized that I did like a bit of like researching and looking at the family tree and my family came over in the Great Depression. They had no money. So Mm -hmm. the rice bubble treats were like the epitome of Mm -hmm. luxury. That's huge because that is sugar. Yeah. That is a big deal. Yeah, it's not Mm -hmm. a potato. It's like what the street, Mm -hmm. they like, oh, my God, the Leslie's have got the rice bubble treats. Did you hear? It's pretty fancy. So That's huge. Yeah, I just sort of. I had to slap myself in the face and realise that, you know, back then there was a famine, there was droughts, there was a war. Like um, my grandpa went to war and he didn't really come back. Their house got set on fire so they started from scratch. Jeez. So mm. there was like a lot of history and a lot of poverty. So, yeah, this was like the the most special recipe that, mm-hmm. you know, so I'm just going to have to make it. Oh, yes, please. Yeah. And going into the pantry items. So I have an exhibition next year, um, mid-next year. It's called Multicultural Pantry Items in Melbourne. And, yeah, it's just the exploration of different cultures in Melbourne because is my culture 
shared with everyone is the mm. question. Yep. So I'm going visiting 15 different families um, and households just to see what's in their family, in their pantry. So does everyone have Vegemite? Does everyone have That's soy? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. yeah. What's their most special ingredients? Like mm-hmm. talking about their traditions. So, yeah, it's a bit of a study. Um, and then I'm doing a little – so I'm doing a portrait mm-hmm. of – six pantry items that we pull out. Like I read that there's 244 cultures in Melbourne. Wow. I'm doing 15. So mm-hmm. it won't even scratch the surface, but I'm very excited by it because mm-hmm. I feel like, you know, it's just something I have to do um, mm-hmm. from being a kid growing up I'm growing up in Melbourne. Like yeah. we used to, as families, we used to go down to Vic Street and that was like the special occasion. Um, we travel from Croydon on the Eastern Freeway to Vic Street for birthdays. Mum and Dad always like loved taking us to different cultures, um, different food cultures and trying everything. And, yeah, I just think we're really lucky growing up in Melbourne and maybe I am lucky I don't have my strict cultural things in my family I kind of get to share everyone's. Do we feel like nibbles? Yes. Because I got I got some quick fire questions to oh, yeah. throw at you. Yep. Who's your favourite cook? Rick Stein. Oh, love oh. Uncle Rick. Oh, Uncle love Rick. Uncle Rick. He saved us a lot in lockdown. We yeah. watched a lot of Rick everything lockdown. Everything oh on God. yeah, on the Bless internet that has Uncle Rick in it. Uh, my mum bought um his DVDs um for their caravan. Um love. so I feel like I've grown up with Rick. And yeah, he's just Aww. a lovely man. I love how he says Payella and Charitha. <laughs> Charitha. <laughs> Charitha. Oh, that's so good. <laughs> and who's your favorite artist? Um, Kendone. I I've always loved his work and when I read his biography or whatever it was, he's got a book, a novel, I read it. It was very unlike me. And (laughs) through that I discovered that he had his first exhibition at 40 years old. I didn't know that. Wow. Yeah, that just gave me a lot of courage to do my first exhibition at um, I think I was 35 or 34. So I was thought, oh, I'm a bit too old for this game. But Never. I'm not. Mm. And hard-hitting question, what is your favourite kitchen sound? Uh, um, definitely the coffee machine and I'm not operating it. <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> not so good when you're operating it. What's your favourite kitchen smell? Um, I feel like every one of your guests says it's um, this, but it's for a reason, garlic oh, yummy. and onion mm-hmm. on the stove. So my partner... Every Sunday morning he has this ritual where he does comfort garlic. So mm. all morning the house is just swarmed with garlic Amazing. and it's so good. And throughout the week we have the comfort garlic just on everything, toast, that's fried so rice. Smart. We need to do this. Yeah, yeah and we give smart. it as gifts. I wanted to bring you some but I didn't want to bring you half a jar. I thought that was a bit <laughs> weird. So <laughs> We'll take whatever Next we time, can get. Yeah, yeah, we'll take it. <laughs> Um, what's your favourite quick kids' meal? Um, peanut butter sandwich. Awesome. I know it's not a meal, but I'm. Um, That's a meal. Definitely a meal. When he needs something, um, preparation. I've only got thirty seconds before it all goes down. So peanut butter sandwich. That's and if perfect. I get fancy, I put honey on it too. Yum. Are you a recipe person or an improviser? Improviser. 
interesting because you're so much of like what you do is all about recipes and recording the the processes. It drives I me crazy. <laughs> no, I'm I'm yeah, I'm not a recipe person. It actually has taught me. Like I've learned food skills through this project mm. without knowing it. Yeah. Um I look at a recipe, I look at the picture, I look at the ingredients and I make it up. Me too. Yeah. Do you get in trouble for that? Yes. Okay. Solidarity. Yeah. <laughs> That's okay. It usually turns out okay. I just don't have the patience to read through all the things. Same. Mm. This is important. What's your Vegemite to butter ratio? Um, so when I was little, it was like 90-10. And oh, as what? an adult, now in, it's 80-20. In favour of Vegemite or in favour of butter? In favour of butter. Okay. Not a psychopath. <laughs> <laughs> Just had to get that clear. <laughs> the starving artist is a cultural stereotype that we all know. We'd love to know how you've navigated this concept throughout your life as an artist, as a designer, as somebody who's been interested long-term in, in creativity. So I have never been surrounded by artists. I've always mm. been solo with friends, not in the art realm. They don't even care about art. So I've never, to be honest, I've never like had to deal with that. And I've never, I've learned it through you guys, to be honest. And <laughs> yeah, I think because I also studied as a graphic designer, I was able to get that job and mm. always put food on the table. Like it was never well paid. But, yeah, The Starving Artist is a funny one because it's just so stupid. I think it came from back in the day artists had someone to help them get commissions. Yeah, it's like a patron basically. So that is that where it come, came from? Some of it, yeah. It's, it's interesting because it's come from lots of different cultural – attitudes towards art and creativity but for an enormous amount of time artists were uh, basically covered by patrons so you would have somebody like even you know like Mozart and Beethoven they had patrons right mm, see mm, as I mm. look to you musical historian over yes me. yeah um, and it was really only in the sort of more 18th to 19th century that artists started to uh, more visual artists, so they would start to make art for themselves, for the for the pleasure of it, or for their own exploration of their life and needing to express where they were at. So, this idea of the patron then becomes quite murky because if the patrons, you know, not getting their needs met, if you're not painting portraits of their like seven kids and you're off painting haystacks, that incongruence can be a bit tricky. So, when artists were striking out on their own, this is only. You know, there's probably lots of other examples of this, mm. but one of them is that artists striking out on their own and having, you know, not really any option but to be starving and living in some tiny attic, yeah, living off basically nothing and making their art and dying of tuberculosis by the age of, you know, 35 or something. And mostly men, like there's not much recorded females um, being even reasonably successful at this, mm -hmm. which is interesting and not a surprise. I think what's important as well is that at some point those stories were the ones that got told over exactly. and over again. Yeah. And this kind of 
archetype of the artist as a struggling, starving, disheveled person living through all this pain and creating despite the pain, this image kind of became one that came to define and follow a lot of artists, Mm. you know, subsequent generations and Became romanticized became as well. Romanticized became normalized that if you are an artist, you must also be a starving and struggling artist. Um, and we've ended mm-hmm. up at this point, and which is why we really feel like it's important to talk about because yeah. is pain necessary to make good art? Do you have to be starving to be a good mm. artist? Why is it so accepted in society that artists shouldn't? make a comfortable wage? Why is it within the art world that when you do become successful, some people do lose interest in you? Um, There are so many questions around it. What I think about a lot is, you know, I went to art school twice and coming out of high school, it was always, well, what are you going to do? You have to get a real job. A you real can't, job. Yeah. You mm-hmm. can't study I art. Yeah. I, so, a, I tried to get a job in PR and that really yep. suits me. What kid that doesn't like to talk. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone was telling me that, yeah, like you need to get a real job. And if you do go to art school, you'll at least need to get a diploma of education afterwards because you must go into teaching. You must become you know, an art teacher or you'll have to go do something else because being just an artist is is not enough and is never enough. I think once you've heard that a lot, you sort of then um, also like what you were saying before with the, the skills that you have to be able to basically look at things through a PR lens, that's not taught at art school because it's taboo. And I'm going to say it on record, like they don't teach you this, this idea of the artist as like a sole business owner, or even if you're looking at it through like an entrepreneurial lens or somebody who needs to be a self-generating business person was shied away from. You couldn't get their eyebrows closer to their hairline at that point. It was just like, oh my goodness, artist as business person. Yeah, how dare, is, you, how dare you? I hate it when people mm. ask me, they're like, what kind of artist are you? And I just go, oh, I say, I, I'm, I have my own personal practice and then I have like a commercial art business mm. that I sell food posters. Or if someone goes, oh, I'm, I do like more real art. I'm like, what does that uh, mean? Who's well, yeah, making this the shit up? Like it's, yeah. that this creates and the hierarchies yeah. within the arts too. I do accept it, like, with my blinkers. I'm just like, whatever, I'm just on my own trail. And I do feel really lucky that I do have the skills and the things I've learned in my past jobs to be able to sell my art. Like, Mm. I think we live in a society now that you can't just paint art. Like, who's going to know what you're doing? Yeah. Like, we live in a different world now. Like, I think yeah. we need to change the narrative. And these courses need to teach kids how to promote themselves or how to write, you know, a gallery pitch. Um, yeah. Because otherwise they'll just end up in jobs they hate. Like, yeah. I think, you know, as part of university degrees, when you become a doctor, they have to do so many hours of placement we should be doing the same things for our artists and designers and fashion designers like I think it's backwards and maybe uni 
isn't the right pathway for artists. Maybe you need to live life as well as doing your art, if that makes sense. So you need to be actually doing instead of being in a classroom or do it backwards. So I've, I would love to do an art course now because I've got, you know, time to be able to rethink all of that and yeah. relearn. So, yeah, I just think society is mm. a bit backwards when it becomes the subject of a starving artist. Like yeah. we don't allow artists to make a living. No. Yeah. yeah. Something that you said before about when somebody – said something to you about real art. I was just curious to get your take on like what do you think what do you think they meant and what what do you what is real art to you and can we unpack that a bit? Um yes, you can unpack that. So I think when someone says real I'm a real artist, in my mind it's political art mm-hmm. compared to a commercial artist where we are making joyful pretty things. And maybe we should just not say the word real anymore. Maybe it should just be like, I'm a political artist or I'm an artist. I mean, I don't think that will ever go away because as we get older, we're learning about what this all means, but then there are new artists coming through and having to learn and discover these exact same narratives that we've like had to take 20 years to unpack. Um, So I I actually think it'll be a constant circle of that real art Mm. versus commercial art. Yeah. But I'm proud. I love being a commercial art. I can pay for dinner. Yeah, because you can pay your mortgage. And other people's dinners. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, and other people's, literally other people's dinners. It's funny about the starving artist. I'm I'm an artist that donates meals to charity to help feed people like I it's almost like I need to write a little novel or something and give yes, it please. to the naive mm. people. Yeah. So. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to say that your art is political. I, I wouldn't make that connection mm. so strongly, but I do think to a point your art does have a strong message and makes statements just as much as anyone who would identify themselves as making art purely for political statements. Yeah. I suppose when I think about it, I've always had such a strong vision in my mind of what I want to make. So I suppose that sort of comes out in that, Mm. like it's quite a strong narrative. It's always about food and helping people or multiculturalness. Yeah, but also the act of food for everyone, where that comes from is a really, it's a political act to be like, Fuck the Victorian government. These people are locked down with mouldy bread, culturally insensitive food and food that's going to go off in 12 hours. Like what can I do about it? Like that's huge. Yeah, I have realised as a community, so it's the Australian landscape for the government is like a snail trail. It. <laughs> In like not a snail, hairy man thing, but it's <laughs> a slow snail. Like nothing happens. Like yeah, we're backwards. So on a lower level, we can make a difference mm. even within business. So you start up a business, you, you have the choices to be able to make a difference through what packaging you use. Mm. You have the difference to be able to choose who your superannuation goes to. Like, do you want to give it to 
a good fund or do you want to give it to like an old daggy fund that are also funding oil rigs? Mm-hmm. Like you can kind of make a difference in a smaller way. And I've always had that mentality when I started Food for Everyone and even in my past businesses, like I've had bosses that have taught me like you don't have to change the world but you can change it in a smaller way. Um, and I just think that is so important to do in your daily practice and apply it to your business. Like you mm. don't have to put so much pressure on yourself to turn up and save the world, but you can just do it in your own little way. Oh, that, my friend, is political. <laughs> Zing. It's incredible. Uh, Grassroots activism in a way that is accessible to numerous people because there is some political art that people will not have access to and not want on their walls. Some might, but uh, you are allowing people to be part of something grassroots and incredible in a way that so many organisations will never be able to do. Oh, I haven't mm. thought of it that, that way. Yeah. Fuck yeah. Mm-hmm. Fuck yeah. yeah. And then that, that makes it real art because it, you had this moment of like, no, something needs to be done. And I think for me that – that is art, that somebody having this deep visceral reaction to something and saying that's not right and being like, what can I do? What is my expression that can make a difference? Mm. And so bazinga. Mm. I know, and it feels so good that it can just be Mm. what I love doing and I can get other people to be a part of it, which is important. So not just being solo, it can have a community with it. So the chefs and artists um, Mm -hmm. has been so important to grow it. And just lots of fun. Like it's way more fun when you're working with other people when you get a better result. Like you just don't get the same old. You get different minds, which I think is so important with collaboration. Mm. Like you can't always have the same voice, Mm. um, but you can have the same message. Mm, That was good. Beautifully said. So you know when you're in line at a buffet and you get to the front and then you realise that everything's gone, there's just soggy toast left. Mm. That's an awful feeling. Yeah. I wouldn't wish that feeling on anyone. I don't want, I, especially our listeners. Especially not our listeners, no. We know how much they would really appreciate the good shit at the buffet. Mm. So we're stocking up our buffet with some What Artists Seat merch really, 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 really soon. It's going to be so hot in that Bay Marie. <laughs> but you really should sign up to our mailing list because... Everyone who's on the mailing list will get first dibs that's, on this That's merch. a warm croissant. That's a crispy, warm croissant. Mm, that's, a, that's a flaky little mini tart. <laughs> so go to our website and you can click the little bit that says newsletter and sign up or there will be one of those annoying pop-ups, sorry, and you can put all your details in there. And avoid the buffet blues. Avoid the buffet blues. Arting and mumming. Arting and mumming. This is a thing that I didn't know, but now I have a baby. I know this. So when some women have babies, they get this creative spurt that just happens and I got it. So I was obviously doing my art and stuff and then I had Francis, my child. I could not stop painting. It was actually unhealthy, the amount of (laughs) paintings I was doing I was doing like four a day 
How old was he at this point? He was a newborn. Amazing. It was psycho. <laughs> and Great. to be honest, I really needed to do it for my mental health. So yeah. I started, yeah. I struggled being an early mother. So I had postnatal mm. depression and painting was my only way out of it. So mm. I painted like a mad woman and we moved to Brisbane in lockdown. So me and my partner and Francis. So we went for a holiday and wanted to introduce him to family. My partner's from Brisbane, it's not so random. And Brisbane went into a snap lockdown as we were about to go home after our holiday. And so we stayed for another 10 days. And then Melbourne went into uh, their second lockdown, as you oh, remember that, how that was the big, one. big that was. And I was mm. like, fuck no, I'm not going back because <laughs> it was sunny up there. Yeah. It was so beautiful. It was like 24 degrees every day, blue skies. And my partner's parents, um, they are just, yeah, super hands-on, but also, like, not annoying. So <laughs> it was re- really lovely that I'd take the baby while I painted and then I'd take him back when he needed me. So it was actually, yeah, a really lovely time. So being a mother, I probably didn't have your normal newborn experience. I probably had a bit of a – I landed in a privileged space where, you know, we were in this situation where – you know, work wasn't a thing. I had my art practice, which kept me going. I was on holidays. Like it sort of, you had to rewrite the script for mm. myself, um, which was great. Well, my partner had his job still, so we could keep afloat. Um, so we stayed there for a year and I could not stop painting. And, you know, it wasn't always easy. Like I didn't always paint. There'd be like three weeks where I couldn't paint because it was all about you know, fatigue and Mm. not sleeping. And then I'd have three weeks of just like perfection where I got into my groove and I could do it and it works. Um, And then, you know, another two months of terrible depression, but then another one month of good. So it was like a big roller coaster for me. And yet being an art mum, I was in Brisbane, I was alone. I didn't have any friends. So art was like literally my only friend um, mm. and the family up there. Um, so, yeah, I was sort of just in my little cocoon. It was a good time and a bad time. I don't I don't regret moving up there. But to be honest, if I stayed in Melbourne, I still would be alone and I'd be in lockdown. Yeah. So I kind of, I think as like all new mothers, you're just in survival mode. You just have to do what you do. So we moved back home and I had to make the choice. I really needed money and it was like, do I go and get another job back to full-time work, back to, you know, all that stuff, or do I turn Food for Everyone into a viable business? And I decided the fun entrepreneurial route, which hasn't been easy, but it, is just so good and I'm so much happier for it. Like I turn up, I think one of the main things that I want to tell women is that you have to do what you love to turn up mm-hmm. as a mother. So if you're doing something that you hate, you will turn up as a mother depressed, you mm-hmm. hate your kid. It's a terrible cycle, but I also want to mention that this is a privilege for me to be able to even just be an artist. So um, to be like a artist that is a mother is like just, I would never think 
I'd ever be in this situation. So, yeah, the art world with my first exhibition coming up is um, kind of intimidating. Like I don't always have the time to do paintings. Now he's two and a half and we get all the the germs. Um. <laughs> and how do you think artists as mothers could be better resourced? Better resourced? I think we should be using mothers to create the art world for mothers, if that makes yeah, sense. So absolutely. Yeah. With... When you have the experience, you have the intel and you mm-hmm. you know yeah. what it's like. So when I had my baby, I messaged everyone that I knew with a kid and I yeah. said, I am so sorry. I have not like been there because I, you know, I showed up, but I didn't show up enough and I didn't actually realize what it was like. Um, it's psycho. Like it's just like, yeah, something I could have never thought of. So I just think mm. utilizing mother's experiences to design a better art world for mums. Mm. I think there's a world where you could, like galleries could have exhibition openings at a time where the parents can enjoy it yeah. as well, oh not just like totally. yeah. a kid's activity. Like I hate kids' activities. Like <laughs> that's my worst nightmare. We don't want to go to that shit. Like the kids love it. And, <laughs> yeah, I just think – don't think about the kids, think about the parents um, because the parents are the creative ones, like the mum's the creative one um, and it's the time mm. that these mothers have spent on this work is literally the only time. Like I hear that I don't do this, I go to bed really early but I, because I'm lucky I paint during the day um, but some mothers paint at 3 a.m. because yeah. that's the only time they can do it. That's just they are so driven to do it food for everyone when I want to have a a launch I do it online so Mm. I'm designing it for my life as it is now like when Ken Doan didn't get invited into galleries he just made his own gallery so I'm big on changing the rules and not abiding by you know structural things that will be there for years to come I love that because you're leading by example. Again, very political. <laughs> <laughs> Smells like real art to me. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> you wouldn't be doing this if you didn't love it because it is incredibly difficult what you're doing and managing all this stuff, but also you do love it. What has kept you going in the past and what is keeping you hopeful about the future? Um, so what keeps me going is just making the art. Making art keeps me going. It's creating like even if one day you don't do a masterpiece you just make a mark on the paper you sort of still get something out of it so I just do think it's important to keep on practicing just showing up Mm. what's your favorite utensil or gadget in the kitchen um so I cook a lot of pasta so definitely a microplane for parmesan grating and garlic grating can you share a kitchen disaster story or a funny story, please? Oh my god, this is not um, <laughs> this is not me cooking. It's a kitchen disaster story because a few weeks ago we had our roof renovation and we have a south facing house and we got a skylight put in and the builder, as they do, they just left at three pm and didn't finish the job, so we had this <gasps> hole in the roof and. Um, you can do that? 
Oh apparently. My oh, my God. I know. This is, this is what <laughs> happens. Wild. Lots of half-assed jobs going around. So we go to bed. The roof is open, whatever. And I go to bed and I hear this, like, little footsteps coming into the room. And I was like, oh, Fran- Franny. We call Francis Franny. Um, he's going to get teased for that when he's older. Um, <laughs> and I was like, are you okay, babe? Mm. And I, like, put on the phone like, it's a fucking possum at my bedside. It's like one of those big ones with the bushy tail. Yeah, they're they're big. Like a ringtail, they're cute. They're a little bit, yeah. you know, smushy. But oh, brush tail, mm. will, they'll mug you if you if you're in the wrong place at the wrong time. They are mm. they're intense. Yeah, it's, um, big. Anyway, so I like scream, and it runs. It runs downstairs into the kitchen and just fucks it up. Like it just <laughs> fucks the kitchen. Up. And I just was like, and we we usually clean before we go to bed. Oh, you saints. No, we didn't this time. Oh, oh. Like this is like the one time. So the kitchen, Good. like the possum had just been like really into everything. <laughs> anyway, so we were down there, we're down there, down there. And I was like, why is the TV on? And I was what? like, I like, because you know when you're half asleep and you're like, I was yelling at Mike. I was like, Mike. Why are you? Why are you watching the TV? I thought he was up watching the TV. The possum had turned on Becca at fucking three a.m. in the middle of the night. So I just like have this like crazy kitchen with Becca blasting. Um, we managed to get it out three hours later. Um, three hours. Three hours of um, fun possum standoff. We ended Whoa. up being in my son's bed. Oh, the tables have turned. Um, but yeah, that was a good time. So it's not. I actually not had like a food disaster, but that is like, it sounds a, like it. a fun possum kitchen disaster because it was just like, oh you know, there was flour, there was pasta, it was like the fridge was open. I was like, what Whoa. the hell? Like, it's like a teenager you. come home drunk or something. Yeah, I was going to say, I tell yeah. you, they'll get you. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. So if that means that there's not really been many cooking disasters for you, what is your superpower then? Um, so my kitchen superpower? Mm. I would say making other people cook for me. Legend. <laughs> Good one. Yeah. Very clever. I invite people over. I'm like, let's cook together. Let's have a pasta party. <laughs> and I sit back with a vino and they cook me dinner. Love it. So, so, I'm going to check on this possum. I'll be back in a sec. Yeah. Just, oh, it's done. <laughs> yeah. I like cooking, but I love people cooking for me. Fair we'll enough. be able to sort you out with that actually <laughs> in a little bit. We got you. We got you. In a few words, how would you describe your cooking? Simple, no fuss. Other people cooking for me. <laughs> Nailed it. And now the big one. If you could recreate any existing famous artwork out of food, what would it be? Um, the Mona Lisa, and I'd make it out of my mum's um, recipe spaghetti bolognese. The spag bowl Mona Lisa. Yeah. That can be your next, next exhibition. Doesn't she just like yeah. look all a bit swirly, swirly? She's a, yeah, she's a little bit spag bowl. Yeah. And I think she'd be fine with that. Yeah. Yeah. Those rosy red tomato cheeks. <laughs> Is she smiling? We don't know. <laughs> it's recipe time. It's recipe time. So we have asked you to share a recipe with us that is close to your heart. Can you tell us about the recipe and why you chose it? So the recipe is nudie. Nudie? Nudie. 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 (laughs) (laughs) Hang on. Let me get this. G 
N-U-D-I. So when we lived in Brisbane, I cooked a lot because I was doing all these recipe posters. I was trying to be inspired by what's next and um, I just felt like it was what I wanted to do at the time. And I was also watching a lot of pasta grannies and she made this spinach and ricotta nudie with potato and I made that so much, like Mm. I made it many times, but I just have this memory of making this dish. It was just me, Francis, and my partner, three Mm. of us in our little Queensland cottage, and it was literally the time of the floods and we were stuck inside for four days, really hot, the windows were open, everything was really humid and mm. I was sitting just making pasta, which is obviously not the best conditions mm. to do that. It's like <laughs> nudie is like pasta. It's like gnocchi. Um, and I was just rolling it and it was just really beautiful. I had this lovely um, Matthew Halsall music in the background. I had incense mm. going and I was just rolling this nudie and it was really therapeutic Yeah. Um, because the power was out. I had my nudie the rain. Oh my God. I don't know. It was just really comforting. So that's always just been like this really most memorable recipe that um, I always hold dear to my heart. Carbs help everything. Yeah. <laughs> um, who did you last cook it for? Um, Mike and Francis. Beautiful. Yeah. Mike thinks it doesn't fill him up um, straight away and Francis throws it on the ground and I love it all. So... <laughs> <laughs> Are there specific rules for cooking this recipe? Having done it so much, have you kind of come up with some things that are Don't. Um, so when you're rolling the balls, don't push them too hard. It's very soft. And when mm-hmm. you're also like mashing the potatoes, it's really gentle. Like you're just sort of molding it, not squishing it. And I think we all know this. When you do the spinach, you really get the water out. Yeah. Aha, uh-huh, yes. Yeah. Okay, that's good to know. And um, you obviously put them in the water. Some people put them in the water and cook them. But I like to um, have the garlic going and stuff and chuck them straight into like hot oil and, mm. you know, Yum. make them a bit more flavourful. Well, speaking of, what are the flavours that you love in this dish? And when we make it, which we will, um, what should we look for when we're making it? So when you're making it, You've got to have the right potatoes, so ah, the purple okay. ones. What are ah, they called? Ah. Don't know. I forget I what, they're called, know what they're called, but someone will know. Yeah, um, and they can write to us. Um, yeah. And when you're doing it, when you cook the potatoes, wait for them. You don't wait for them to cool. You have to take the skins off straight away. Mm-hmm. Um, wow. I think, but it's so simple. There's like there's not many steps for this Love recipe. That. And what would you serve with this dish? Or is it a main? Is it a standalone? It's thing? a main. So whenever I serve a pasta, no matter what, I just serve the most simple salad. So awesome. there's no fuss in it. It's just like leaves and whatever's in the fridge. And I love to um, microplane the parmesan on top and have like a nice balanced dressing. I used to make terrible dressings and I've trained myself to actually make non-terrible ones and I'm the dressing queen now apparently. So I do like just a really good olive oil, lemon, a pinch of sugar and a bit of mustard and shake it in a jar. I think the jar is important. It always makes it better. And what do we, well, I would actually drink it a little bit out of the jar. But anyway, 
I, I want a teaspoon for me. Yeah. If <laughs> we're going to be adults about this, what are we actually drinking with this dish if we're not having a little sippy sippy from the um, jar? I think something fresh because it's mm. ricotta and mm. spinach. It could be quite heavy. Um, so, yeah, a really yummy Riesling. Nice. Or like mm. a slightly chilled Pinot Noir. Ooh. We are. We're getting. I'm getting hungry. So we we've got so final it's luckily, questions. Yeah, like we're the is. final at the final ones. <laughs> so community is something that's clearly a huge value of yours. If anyone's listening who wants to do something and share it with people and get like-minded people around them, um, what are your tips? Having gone through this process yourself um having people uh, around you who share similar values how have you gone about that or can you reflect on that yeah so suppose when I started like when I said I wanted to approach Andrew McConnell and I didn't mm. think he would say yes he said yes I think most people want to help most people also like want to feel like they're contributing yeah so I feel like mm. You just ask the question mm. and if they don't say yes, it doesn't mean that's a no. It could be a no for now. In 12 months' time, it could be a yes. So yeah. no is not always no, but I think you should always ask and not decide it's mm. a no before. That's really beautiful because I think that that if you don't ask, you don't get idea. Is, that's right. It can be really scary, but maybe starting at that like smaller level, you're still – building community but then you've got that you know that higher yeah um aspiration that it can work out and i do think if you have values that align yeah it's always going to work yeah so just to say your values out loud and repeat them is always important so you repeat them in your pictures your emails whatever you do mm. um i just think yeah it's really important to tell people what you're all about and what you're doing, what your plan is um, and, you know, who you're supporting or if you're just supporting yourself, like what are people getting out of this? And obviously if they want to help, it brings so much joy so um, people will be invested. Mm. Speaking of joy, where in Melbourne do you love to eat that brings you a lot of joy or where else in the world do you love to eat? Because I know that you have travelled. So you can pick both or you can answer just just one. Um, so I just love a cheap and cheerful. Um, <laughs> my in-laws came down a few months ago and they were like, we'll mind, Francis, you and Mike go out to lunch. And Mike was like, yep, yeah, I'm going to dress up. And we we thought that the right thing to do was to go to like a fancy restaurant and we got into the city and I was like, do you just wonder if I can go to Soy 38? And we were in there in like, Mike was in like nice like suit vibes. I was in a dress and we were just like on the plastic chairs and yeah. tables, just like this is perfection. Cheap and cheerful. So yeah, cheap and <laughs> cheerful. And I also just love giving my money to the families that run these businesses mm-hmm. and they're all yeah. cooking their like home recipes. Oh. So yeah, I think, that's also the spirit of Melbourne. Like you want to keep that alive. You don't want these institutions that like you want to visit these big institutions that, you know, are fine dining. But I think the spirit of Melbourne really is in the cheap and cheerful. (laughs) (laughs) 
So by now, if everyone listening hasn't already tracked you down on all the platforms and found mm-hmm. all your work and are just obsessed with you, please <laughs> tell them where they can find your work. So I'm just online. Um, foodforeveryone.com.au is the website and you can see those little logos at the bottom for Instagram. And then my personal art, um, gemlesley.com. My Instagram is gemlesley as well. Brilliant. And so we're going to link. We're going to link everything yeah. so they can find you. Everything will be in the show notes. Final question. I don't know if you can answer this. What's for dinner? Oh, my God. Hungarian food. Yes. <laughs> yes. Thank you for listening. You can find Gem's recipe and links to everything in the show notes. If you want more wildlife-related kitchen disaster stories Mm -hmm. or any other kitchen disaster stories, Mm -hmm. really, please subscribe, review and tell everyone you know about us. It helps us a lot. In really exciting news, we'll have merch coming very, very soon, but you've got to be on our mailing list for first dibs. And you can sign up through our website, whatartistseat.com.au. See you next time.